It's early autumn 2021 and Russian voters have been to the polls. The Russian parliamentary election is a simple game. 450 seats in the Duma, three days of voting, and at the end, United Russia always wins. Ahead of the Duma or parliamentary elections, President Putin said, nothing can break the sacred continuity of times and generations. And the sacred continuity of Putin in power was indeed unbroken. United Russia claimed most seats, two-thirds of the votes, and his supporters celebrated. Two years ago, we began researching the big steal, the biggest theft in history in the biggest country in the world, Russia, by its own government, led by Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin has stolen, over a 20-year period, a trillion dollars from the Russian people. There's no question in my mind that he is a total an absolute criminal, and he's made more money from his crimes than any other criminal in the history of crime. We begin this new series of The Big Steal with another crime, a stolen democracy. In Putin's Russia, political rivals are banned, sometimes jailed, even poisoned. The media is censored, and anyone publicly disagreeing with the ruling party is a target. This year's election at times was a farce. In St. Petersburg, three candidates were on the ballot paper, each with exactly the same name, Boris Vishnevsky. Boris and Boris and Boris were candidates for three different parties. One of them united Russia's main opponents. To confuse voters even further, all three Boris Vishnevskys looked almost identical. Elsewhere, videos emerged of boxes being stuffed with reams of ballot papers. There were reports of disappearing ink being used in some polling stations. Independent election observers, banned of course, nevertheless documented thousands of irregularities. Opposition leader Alexei Navalny's supporters released an app advising people which opposition candidates stood the best chance against United Russia. But the app was banned by Apple and Google after the Kremlin turned the screws on the tech companies. And that's just a snapshot of Russian democracy 2021. Whoever you vote for, Putin wins, and the rest stand on the sidelines and are generally ignored. Westerners complain, Putin continues. Hundreds of Russian tanks have been transported by train towards the border with Ukraine, a major build-up. Where Vladimir Putin is involved, there's always the same pattern, conflict, deliberate confusion, lies and fear. Hands, fracture stations, hands, fracture stations. If you don't change the course, I'll be fired. Do it, over. For the last 12 days, Alexei Navalny has been confined to this Berlin hospital in an induced coma while he's being treated for chemical poisoning. The arrest on live TV of the Russian opposition Alexei Navalny upon his return to Moscow last Sunday is unacceptable. Add to the mix a global pandemic. In the past two weeks, the number of cases of COVID-19 outside China has increased 13-fold. As far as I know, today, in the morning, the first vaccine against the new coronavirus infection was registered. 
In the days and weeks ahead, we expect to see the number of cases, the number of deaths, and the number of affected countries climb even higher. The tragedy about coronavirus in Russia is that it wasn't that Putin was let down by the system, but that Putin let the system and his own people down. With the new US president in the White House after Trump, things have begun to change, but not necessarily for the better. So you know Vladimir Putin, you think he's a killer? Mm-hmm, I do. So what price must he pay? The price he's going to pay, well, you'll see shortly. I remember in my childhood, when we argued in the courtyard, we used to say, it takes one to know one. Meanwhile, protesters on the streets of Russia are still trying to make their voices heard, despite the continued government crackdown on dissent. In our first season, we told the story of Yukos. Once Russia's most successful company, it became one of the first major victims of the Putin regime's assault on the rule of law. An international tribunal in The Hague concluded that Russian courts bent to the will of Russian executive authorities to bankrupt Yukos, assign its assets to a state-controlled company, and incarcerate a man who gave signs of becoming a political competitor. We're back to capture the essence of the chaotic world created in part by Vladimir Putin, president of Russia, and in the eyes of many, the boss of a mafia state. While we were shielding from coronavirus, for Putin it was business mostly as usual. He's been in power in the Kremlin for more than 20 years, plans to stay until 2036, and backs like-minded dictators elsewhere. Putin stood by his neighbour, Belarus President Alexander Lukashenko, when his forces brutally suppressed pro-democracy protests. Putin's troops are still in Ukraine. He treats the European Union, as he did with its high representative Joseph Borrell, with undisguised contempt. At home, Putin has stamped on opposition, if anything, even more shamelessly than before. The opposition leader Alexei Navalny was poisoned with Novichok nerve agent. When Navalny recovered, he was jailed. For ordinary Russians, their great nation with so many possibilities to prosper remains corrupted and impoverished by a Kremlin kleptocracy. I always say that every country has its own mafia. In Russia, mafia has its own state. In this new series, we'll examine the state of Russia today, why its leader is untroubled by his reputation as Putin the poisoner, and what, if anything, the West can do to keep him in check. Joe Biden is resetting Russian relations after Trump. Britain sent a gunboat into Ukrainian waters near Russian-occupied Crimea. But beyond flag-waving and tough talk, is Putin a problem that could outlast all current democratic Western leaders? We want to begin with the story of a man in a Russian prison. Not Alexei Navalny, although we'll come to him later, but another Alexei, Alexei Pichugin. He worked for Yukos, the company whose story we told in our first season. In 2020, a Dutch court confirmed the largest ever arbitration award worth more than $50 billion in compensation in favour of the company's former majority shareholders. Pechugin was jailed in 2003 on fabricated charges and has been in prison for more than 18 years. 
Russia's longest-serving political prisoner. The European Court of Human Rights twice found Russia guilty of violating Pachukin's basic human rights. In short, he never had a fair trial. Opposition activist Vladimir Karamurza takes up the story of just one of Putin's political prisoners. He was arrested in June of 2003 on charges that are not corroborated by any kind of evidence that has been confirmed by you know, those courts in foreign countries that were asked to rule in this case. The real reason Alexei Pechugin is in prison is just like in the case of the late Vasily Alexanyan, is because the Russian government, the Russian authorities are trying to get incriminating false testimony against the leadership of Yukos. And Alexei Pechugin is just refusing to give them that. A few weeks ago, Pechugin's allies and supporters lost contact. After his 18 years in prison, they feared the worst. Mikhail Khodorkovsky, formerly Pechugin's boss at Yukos, told me Alexei's still alive, but he's been transferred to an even worse Russian prison. Yes, we do know that he's in Lefortov, in the Lefortov prison at the moment, and we think that they want him to give evidence against me so that they could start another case against me. And just on that, that's one of the few names that people in the West have heard of, and they know this is a pretty terrible place to be. Yes, the prison, Lefortovo prison, as well as the black dolphin, where he would end up in if he doesn't testify against me, um, are one of those places that there is no equivalent, there is nothing like that in the West. Mikhail Khodorkovsky knows what Russian justice is like. In 2003, he challenged President Putin about corruption and bribery live on Russian TV. Within a few months, Khodorkovsky, Pechugin and other Yukos staff were arrested. Mikhail himself, once Russia's richest man, was put in a cage for a televised show trial, then jailed for a decade. Now free, he's in exile in London. We'll hear more from him in the next episodes. But all this leads us to an even better-known Putin victim, Alexei Navalny, the charismatic opposition leader. Navalny is often described as the man Putin fears most. He's a lawyer who came to prominence campaigning against corruption. His weapon of choice is social media. Navalny has millions of YouTube and Twitter followers. But like many who challenge Putin, in August 2020, Navalny was poisoned during an internal flight in Russia. Like the former Russian intelligence officer Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia, who were poisoned by Russian intelligence officers in Salisbury, England in 2018, Navalny was hit with the Russian nerve agent Novichok. The first thing you feel is that you cannot breathe. Russian opposition politician Vladimir Karamurza is another of Putin's poison victims. In Vladimir's case, twice. And I have to say it is a terrifying experience to, to try to grasp some air and not be able to do this and feel as if you're suffocating and then feel your heart racing away and feel yourself being covered in sweat and then you start vomiting violently and then you just feel your body and your organs just give up. 
one organ after another and you feel life coming out of you and you feel that this is the end. This is what I felt both times. Navalny, suffering similar symptoms, fled to Berlin, where his Novichok poisoning was treated. During five months of recovery, he staged a brilliant hoax call, phoning the men who poisoned him, tricking them into believing he was a comrade from Russian intelligence. Konstantin. Hello, Konstantin Borisovich. Recording that extraordinary phone call, Alexei Navalny discussed the method of delivering the poison. They put it in his underpants, they told him, which were blue, by the way. Just another day's work for Russian intelligence. Mark Galliotti is an expert in modern Russia at Britain's defence and security think tank, the Royal United Services Institute. I asked him why the Russian assassination method is often poison. Wouldn't it be easier just to shoot people? Well, poison is useful in two circumstances as a method of assassination. First of all, if you want it to be truly untraceable and you can deny every aspect of it. Alternatively, it's sometimes all about the theatricality of murder. And this is why they use polonium with, with Litvinenko. This is why they use Novichok to attempt to kill Skripal. There are quicker, easier, neater, cheaper ways to kill someone. But poison will usually kill someone over a period of time. So you drag out the story. And it's that much more horrific. If, if Navalny had just suddenly died, that would have been a momentary story with obviously long-term repercussions. But I think the idea is if he was wasting away, if he'd arrived and you know, his body is being pulled off a plane in Moscow and so forth, it would make it that much more horrific. And the Kremlin could sort of deny it. It could deny it with a wink and a smirk that actually says, well, we're not admitting it, but you know we did it really. Where does Navalny fit into this? I mean, first of all, how, how important is he as a figure, even though he's in jail? Really, Navalny is very much at a turning point. I mean, he himself is stuck away behind bars. But the question is whether or not he becomes a symbol rather than a politician. I mean, in many ways, this is actually what his remaining supporters are, are counting on, that he becomes, I don't know, like Che Guevara, someone who actually becomes much, much greater than the individual human being himself. Because, quite frankly, his, his organisation is being dismantled throughout the country. Insofar as there is an organised opposition, it will be in exile. And therefore, they really need someone who can't be jailed, who can't be taken off the airwaves, and a symbolic Navalny is, is going to be that. The question is whether or not they're able to do that. At the moment, to be honest, it's hard to tell. Sounds like you're talking about Lenin. Well, I mean, this is it. I, I, I sincerely hope that we'll never see Navalny's embalmed body sitting in, in a mausoleum. But yeah, there is this point about the extent to which actually, you know, political figures make that jump from being actual flesh and blood organisers and orators and agitators to when they become symbols of something greater. And why Navalny was so dangerous to the Kremlin was precisely because he was a symbol of hope, of optimism. The Kremlin depended on, frankly, apathy within the, the public. Not vociferous, wholehearted support. They didn't need that. What they need is, is for people to think, look, there's no point sticking your head over the parapet because things aren't going to get any better and any change could well be for the worse. So we might as well just cope with what we've got because life is not terrible for most Russians. Navalny was the first person who really managed to break through that 
and say, no, actually change can be good and change is achievable. And that's why he was dangerous. While trying to arrange our conversation with Vladimir Karamurza, the Russian opposition politician and twice over a Putin poison victim, our producer wondered why Vladimir had not returned our calls. We saw the answer on television. He was being arrested. His crime? Attending a peaceful gathering of opposition politicians in Moscow. Vladimir's free now, or he was when we caught up with him. I asked him why he thought he was poisoned and not shot. Poisoning has been a, a method that has been used by Soviet security services against the Kremlin's political opponents for decades. So since Vladimir Putin came to power two decades ago, poisoning has proliferated uh, and has become almost a preferred method to be used by the Kremlin to target its political opponents. There's been a slate of independent journalists, opposition politicians, anti-corruption activists, and other types of undesirables, quote-unquote, who have suffered um, this fate. And I think there are two main reasons why this particular method, poisoning, has been a preferred tool used by the Kremlin against its opponents. One reason, I think, frankly, is the sadistic aspect of this. It is not only murder or attempted murder, it is also a form of torture. It is painful and terrifying. And also, if you are fortunate enough to survive this, as I was, as Alexei Navalny was, it then takes months and months and a lot of efforts to come back to some sort of normal. I mean, I've had to learn to walk again, literally. It took me about a year both times to, 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 to get back to some sort of normal. And I'm the fortunate one. When I was, when I was laying in a coma uh, in a Moscow hospital both times in 2015 and 2017, doctors were telling my wife that I had about a 5% chance to survive. So I have no words to describe how grateful and how fortunate I feel to even be able to sit here and speak with you. But apart from the sadistic aspect, there's also plausible deniability, which I think is actually the main reason that the Kremlin likes to resort to this method. When Alexei Navalny recovered in January 2021, he returned to Moscow, bravely but perhaps unwisely. He knew he'd be arrested. After all, the Russian authorities broadcast as much on state media. The charges were ludicrous that Navalny had violated parole conditions from a previous conviction by failing to report to the Russian prison system twice a month during the time he was being treated in Germany for the poisoning by Russian state hitmen. I wondered why Navalny didn't simply stay away. What was it that made him return? I asked first Vladimir Karamurza and then Mikhail Khodorkovsky. I was amazed by how many calls I got from Western journalists last September when Alexei Navalny woke up from, from his coma uh, in, in the Berlin hospital and announced uh, immediately that he was going to go back to Russia as soon as he could. I've got so many calls from Western journalists asking me to comment on this quote-unquote sensation, as they put it, to which I said that not only don't I see any kind of sensation, I don't see any kind of news here. Of course he's going to go back to Russia. He's a Russian politician. Where else do you expect him to be? There was no question in my mind for a second of whether or not to go back. As soon as I was able to literally stand up and walk again, after both of my poisonings, I went straight back on a plane and flew straight back home to Russia because this is where I belong. I'm a Russian 
politician. I think the biggest gift that we, those of us who are in opposition to Vladimir Putin, could give to the Kremlin, could give to this regime, would be to give up and run away. This is what they want from us. Back in the 70s, when Yuri Andropov, who's sort of this mentor and this ideological icon to the people who are currently in the Kremlin, was head of the Soviet KGB, he came to a very clear conclusion, and he was correct, that the most effective way for the Soviet regime to neutralize and silence its political opponents was not to imprison them or put them in labor camps or psychiatric hospitals, all of which was done as well, but was to exile them out to the West. Because once a political opponent is outside of the country, they very quickly lose not only the sense of everyday reality, which needless to say is necessary to, to continue with political activity, but also more importantly, they lose the moral authority and the moral credibility to continue because you cannot sit somewhere far away in a safe place and tell people what to do. It just doesn't work that way. And so for me, there wasn't a question for a second of whether or not to come back. I'm a Russian politician, my place is in Russia. It's the same for Alexei Navalny, it's the same for many of our colleagues. Where does Navalny fit into this picture? Because again, seen from the outside, this is a man who has risked everything, his wife, his family, everything. And then he could have stayed in the West in exile, and he's gone back to, to face what everyone thought he might face. It's either incredibly brave or possibly a bit foolish because he might never get out. Well, I think there's no doubt that what he did was a very brave step. And I think to some extent it is justified in the sense that as far as he can see himself as a future leader, at the same time, we understand that people who are his main supporters are part of the radical opposition who are becoming more radical every day. So I think, and I'm not sure, that this part of radical opposition would succeed in preserving the democratic goals of regime change. And that's the, the key issue. You know, when I heard what Navalny did, it reminded me of our conversation when I said to you, you didn't have to go back to Russia. You could have been out and you spent time in jail. And I thought there was a, a similarity here. What is it, I thought, with these Russians? They have to go back and face this thing. Why, you know, do, does it not strike you as, yes, very brave, but also likely to end in the suffering that you went through and Navalny is going through? Well, I had a different objective from that of Navalny's. Uh, I did not position myself, I did not see myself as a political leader. What was important for me were the people who worked with me, over 100,000 people. I didn't want them to feel that they were part of a criminal gang, of an organized criminal group, which is how the authorities were positioning them and wanted them to feel. So it, for that, I had to go back and testify in court. At that time, it was still possible. But then Navalny's supporters struck back with another social media coup. They released a video of Vladimir Putin's Black Sea Palace in an estate so large it is 39 times the size of Monaco, all built at a cost of $1.35 billion. We came up with this investigation when I was in intensive care, but we immediately agreed that we would release it when I returned home to Russia, to Moscow, because we do not want the main character of the film to think that we are afraid of him 
and that I will tell his worst secrets whilst abroad. The palace has its own border control and security, like a state within a state. It has a helipad, a fully-fledged ice palace, a church, an amphitheater, a 2,500-square-meter tea house, as well as an 80-meter bridge. A special tunnel was built into the seaside cliff to provide access to the beach, and it also includes a dining room in the middle with the best possible view of the sea. The palace is filled with exclusive pieces of furniture made individually to order. The sofas cost roughly $20,000 to $27,000. There are 47 sofas in total, and the palace's most expensive table costs 4.1 million rubles, which is almost $56,000. Within a week, Navalny's Putin Palace film reached 92 million views. Street protests and demonstrations followed. Evgeny Feldman is a documentary photographer who's often photographed Navalny, and covered his insurgent presidential campaign. We actually got to know each other during that big wave of protests on the winter of 2011-2012. I was then a reporter at Nova Gazeta. I was a photographer, but I also was doing some sort of deep news. Navalny was the person who was uh, very proactive in contacting me. He was calling back when I texted him. So that was the moment we kind of got into knowing each other. And Navalny was really trying to to oppose the authorities. And that was really interesting story to cover. Next year, he and his brother were trialed, and his brother was sent to jail, and he got another probation term. So for the whole time before we got to know each other and he started his uh, presidential campaign, there were a lot of news I covered about him uh, and about his family. Uh, I've been at his apartment after it was searched with all this, um, you know, um, marital uh, photo albums or whatever thrown over. Oliver Carroll, Moscow correspondent for The Independent, has also been a close observer of Navalny's political campaigns. To a great degree, he is a politician which Russia has not seen before. I mean, the general trend in Russia is when faced with repression, people either crack or make compromises with the regime. Navalny never did that. Uh, at every phase, he raised the stakes, uh, took risks and generally didn't compromise. That's what sort of made him such a challenge for Putin. Uh, and he also turned out to be the country's best communicator and political organiser. Prison didn't stop Navalny's protests. He went on hunger strike, losing a great deal of weight. There were fears he might die. In Russia, bravery can seem almost crazy. Evgeny Feldman again. His decision to return, knowing all those risks, and his decision to uh, stay active for all those years is really something, and it's really brave. And he's really driven with, um, I don't know, some uh, vision of better Russia, I guess. But at the same time, I think that, um, you know, this same decision to get back is out of, you know, the spectrum we are usually talking about. Like, it's just brave to go out on the streets in Moscow when you know you'll be beaten or, I don't know, bearing all those risks for many years. And that is true. But this is like next, next, next level thing. And it's really hard to categorize it in direct terms. Even knowing him for many years, I was not maybe surprised, but kind of shocked, maybe. When you were with Navalny 
photographing him. Were you aware you're always being watched, you're always being followed, there's always a risk? Generally, yes. We were attacked a lot during that campaign. Physically, like, uh, dozens of times someone uh, threw eggs at Navalny and me as person being physically close to him. I was once personally attacked in a trim Navalny was not at, uh, and someone dropped a bucket of ink over my head. Um, Navalny was twice attacked with this uh, caustic green liquid that is um, used as uh, antiseptic in Russia. Once uh, this liquid got into his eye and he partially lost his sight. So in that terms, like, you know, some local provocations who are physical but not life-threatening, there was always around. And also Navalny was really, really good at spotting the tail. It happened, I don't know, maybe five or six times, you know, seeing this list of assassins uh, supposedly following us in all those trips and being somewhere nearby. There was kind of new and, like, really disturbing. The Russian authorities were alarmed enough by the protests to arrest an estimated 5,000 Navalny supporters. While the European Court of Human Rights judged the Navalny conviction to be politically motivated, Navalny himself, in typically uncompromising terms, issued a defiant patriotic statement. I want Russia to be as wealthy as it has the potential to be. I want this wealth to be distributed more fairly. I want us to have normal health care. I want to see men live long enough to retire. These days, half don't make it. I want us to have a normal education system. And I want people to be able to get an education. I want people to make as much money as they would for comparable work in a European country. We should fight not only against the lack of freedom in Russia, but against our total lack of happiness. We have everything, but we are an unhappy country, so we should change our slogan. Russia should not only be free, but also happy. Russia will be happy. That is all. When the EU's chief diplomat, Joseph Borrell, visited Moscow, he tried to raise the detention of Navalny. His Russian counterpart, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, dismissed the European Union as merely an unreliable partner. In a further attempt to humiliate the EU, Russia expelled three diplomats from Germany, Poland and Sweden for attending pro-Navalny demonstrations. The writer and historian Anne Applebaum explains why Putin sees Navalny as a threat. Navalny is a fascinating character and his movement is extremely interesting, partly because he and they are one of the few groups in the world who've really spent a lot of time analyzing the true nature of modern autocracy, understanding its sources of power and looking to undermine it. And they understood from the beginning that the arguments to make against Putin were not strictly about human rights, but were about theft and corruption. And uncovering Putin's corruption and uncovering the corruption of the people around him has been their main goal. Um, and they've really successfully used the tools of modern media, you know, YouTube and online videos to, to, to prove and show. They do kind of, you know, shows almost, you know, these, these fantastic films that show the web of connections between people and, you know, and they get hundreds of millions of viewers what they haven't done yet is translate that into a winning strategy. In other words, a strategy that can actually undermine the dictator. I mean, they have, I think, successfully weakened him. And now they're hoping to use the Russian electoral system, strange though that sounds, 
um, they're hoping to get people to, to do what they call smart voting um, and to vote for really anybody who's not a member of the ruling party, just to have some opposition people in parliament so that there's some spokespeople for for the non-regime point of view in public life. And they 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 do have a strategy. Um, they do think that Navalny will survive prison and come out again. Navalny's strategy could be paying off, but it's impossible to know accurately how popular he really is. Oliver Carroll, the Moscow correspondent for The Independent, again. Certainly, the effect of the last seven months, his return to Russia, his imprisonment, the daily grind on propaganda networks which present him as an agent of the West, the labelling of him as an extremist, the destroying of the network which he'd built, of course, that's had a, a huge impact on his popularity. He's had everything, including the, the kitchen sink and Novichok, thrown at him. Putin himself um, has seen his support falling quite substantially. And more of those people who support him seem to be doing so in a very lukewarm way, as if there aren't any other options. Every year they do a, a poll of who Russians consider to be great leaders. Stalin, of course, has always been strong number one in those lists. But in 2017, Putin was second with 34%. And today he barely makes the top five and he has 15%. So there is a major shift in uh, support for, for Putin, especially among youngsters. And there is a real generational difference here, a real sense of fathers and sons, the way you might have seen in 1968 in Europe, where the fathers simply don't understand why their sons and daughters don't see the world the way they see them and are very angry. That sort of father class is, is currently in government it won't be forever. And so somewhere down the line, we're going to see a shift. We've been in a situation like this before, perestroika, the same things were said back then. But I do think that the differences within the generations, the cultural sort of shift that you're seeing among young Russians is possibly greater than you saw uh, during the last years of the Soviet Union. Why do you think it has become Putin the poisoner then with Skripal's uh, here, with uh, Litvinenko and Navalny? Is it partly to make people suffer or is it partly actually because when that is found out, it is a kind of terrorism because it is a matter of theatre. It's being shot or, or any other way of killing people is horrible. But this is particularly nasty. And once we find out about it, it does create an atmosphere of terror, which may be useful. I don't know. How do you read that? I'm, I'm certainly tempted to see uh, the sort of spectre of Ivan the Terrible here his Aprichniki, his uh, security, his secret service, the, the men in black who, of course, famously had the insignia of uh, a severed dog's head and a broom, the, the dog's head to sniff out the traitors and the broom to sweep them away. There is that same kind of theatre going on at the moment with Navalny. They are saying, you know, we are in control and don't forget it for a second. And there's definitely that sort of atmosphere going on. But here's another puzzle. In the past, Putin often tolerated opponents because his own position was unassailable. Has he turned so savagely on Alexei Navalny because Navalny really worries him? Mark Galliotti has followed Putin's career for years. Well, I think what we've really seen in the last 18 months, uh, or indeed actually more like eight months, has in fact been that this rather postmodern kind of authoritarianism, one that depended very much on controlling the narrative rather than thuggish goons on the streets, has been moving much more towards what we might think of as a proper old-fashioned kind of authoritarianism. Less worried about PR, less worried about the 
show politics that they used to try and persuade Russians that there was a degree of democracy within the system, and much more just simply about crushing any forms of opposition and just simply stacking the uh, parliament with, with your, your own people. And that very much represents a step back. It represents a weakness, a regime that is concerned about the future. So many governments around the world, including the British government, have had trouble with the coronavirus epidemic and actually being able to decide what to do. And one can understand the problems. But did Putin have a particularly bad time in actually coming to grips with what was happening to the people in, in Russia? Or was he let down by other parts of the system which weren't functioning very well? The tragedy about coronavirus in Russia is that it wasn't that Putin was let down by the system, but that Putin let the system and his own people down. He essentially abdicated responsibility. He was very, very slow to act. Essentially, he only really acted when the mayor of Moscow, Sabyanin, pretty much publicly called him out, which again is a major step for someone who is a senior figure within the Russian political system. And even then, Putin essentially dumped the responsibility on the mayors and the governors and all the various local authorities. And some of them have done a decent job of it, and some of them have done an appalling job of it. But the point is, Putin himself stepped away. This was a challenge that he wasn't ready for. This is a challenge that he didn't know how to deal with. A virus you cannot negotiate with, you can't intimidate, you can't imprison. And therefore, he basically decided not to bother. The other big thing that's changed in the last 18 months is Trump has gone. So does that matter? I mean, it, it wasn't as if uh, we could think of anything particularly concrete, but there was a very different relationship than having a friend in the White House. The Russians never really acted as if they had a friend in the White House because Trump actually didn't really control Russia policy. Congress had taken that unto itself. And from the Russians' point of view, the thing about Trump was, look, they knew that he would throw anyone and everyone under the bus to protect himself. They knew they didn't have anyone reliable. And they also knew he was unpredictable. And something that I heard time and time again talking to people within the Russian Foreign Service and connected to it is a sense that they... They didn't mind someone who was hostile, but they wanted someone who was predictable and who was professional. And let's be honest, Trump was neither of those. That's a very interesting point. So with Biden, at least, they have someone who was in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, in, in the past who has a long record of being quite tough on Moscow. So at least he is predictable. They're dealing with someone whose latest tweet is not going to upset the politics, presumably. Exactly. The Russian perspective on Biden is, again, not that he's a friend, but they're not expecting to have a friend in the United States. But at least he is a grown-up. And that's something that I heard, again, several people use exactly that phrase, that at least he's an adult, that you know where you, you, you're operating. You can compare their interests with your interests, you can reach a deal, and it's a deal that you think will actually last. That's the point. It's actually that once you've reached some kind of an agreement with the Americans, you can have some faith in it. And that brings up, for the West at least, the biggest issue of all. Does it matter what we think of Putin and his Kremlin cronies? Konstantin Kalachev from the Russian think tank The Political Expert Group is blunt. No one in the government cares about Western opinion anymore. We'll explore Western options in our next episodes. For now, Mikhail Khodorkovsky remains optimistic that the Biden reset after Trump at least means the grown-ups are back in charge in the White House. The unpredictability of Trump, against the background of unpredictability of Putin as well, 
scared me quite a lot. I could imagine some kind of confrontation or at least a standoff between the two, because despite what people think, Putin is also quite unpredictable and makes unpredictable steps. Is it conceivable that Navalny could become president or leader of Russia? And if so, how could that possibly work? Mark Galliotti. It's conceivable if, alas, very, very implausible. I think the way it would work is, and we're already beginning to see this, an extent to which actually in the future there may well be this, this uh, another very pragmatic and ruthlessly pragmatic political generation. Let's say if something happens to Putin and the initial power struggle between the current big beasts in the system doesn't lead to a long-term solution. It may well be that there will be the need for someone who is able to bring some kind of year zero solution. And it would be just about conceivable that Navalny or someone like Navalny could be the president that takes that forward, who on the one hand allows security and prosperity to the kleptocrats, but as the price for that brings in a whole new, more transparent and above all more democratic order. And Applebaum thinks that Navalny's supporters remain optimistic that despite everything, he could lead them and lead Russia too. They do think that Navalny will survive prison and come out again. They do even talk about him one day being president of Russia um, because they think that their strategy that involves, you know, continually reminding people of the true nature of the regime will eventually undermine it. Um, and not only among the general public, but among its supporters. Whether that's true, who knows? But e even though you can admire Navalny, there's something quite astonishing about his bravery, frankly, because it, it may come to nothing in the end, and he might not get out of prison ever. Of course he might not, <laughs> Navalny might never get out of prison, but it is extraordinary and remarkable how many people around him do believe he will get out of prison and are planning for that moment. Vladimir Putin made Alexei Navalny an unspoken offer. You can live in freedom if you choose exile. If you choose Russia, it's prison and possibly death. That's been a choice facing Russian patriots throughout history. Has Navalny made the right choice for himself and his country? Not even he himself can know. Next time, there is hope the youth are taking to the streets. We are journalists of independent student journal DOXA, which speaks out against uh, Putin and against authorities. In winter, we made a short video basically about our rights. I've spent last three months under home arrest. I think when we concentrate on the government only and forget about society, we're losing the bigger picture. It's important to, to think and look closer at what is happening in society at large. I was taken off the train and they just started almost beating me. They tore my jacket, threw me to the ground and then they drove me on the floor of the car. 
they did not allow me to get out of there. Perhaps my biggest source of inspiration is those young people that despite the dangers and the threats and the arrests and the expulsions from universities and the sackings from their jobs and, and everything that the Putin regime has been wielding against them, who continue to go out and demonstrate all across the country, as we saw, for example, at the beginning of 2021, after the arrest of Alexei Navalny, when hundreds of thousands of people, mostly young people, went out onto the streets all over Russia, literally from the Baltic Sea to the Pacific Ocean. They are the future of Russia. The Big Steel was presented by me, Gavin Esler, and produced for Fresh Air Production by Martin Points Roberts. Be sure to follow us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.